here in 1 Samuel in uh, chapters 22 and 23, what we're going to be seeing this morning is, is basically a contrast between two men. We're going to be looking at Saul and David. We, we've seen them now, but the contrast between them is going to be stronger than ever in these two chapters. Uh, the one man, David, he has been called and anointed by God to be king of Israel. The other man, Saul, has been rejected by God as king of Israel. But yet David is living in a cave right now and Saul is living in a palace doesn't seem fair right well David is living in a cave but yet his heart is for the Lord and it says that the Lord is with him Saul is living in a palace but he has turned his back on God and God has rejected him as king and right now in our story David is being hunted and Saul is the hunter. Saul is using everything at his disposal, including the entire army of Israel, to hunt down and kill David. Now that sounds like a pretty bad situation, right? I mean, living in a cave. Who would want to live in a cave? I mean, how bad does it, how, how much worse can it even possibly be than living in a cave, hiding for your life because somebody's trying to kill you? And that's certainly how David felt uh, when he arrived at this cave, the cave of Adullam where he's living right now. He felt that, as we saw last week, we looked at the first five verses of chapter 22. David came to this place feeling, well, how much worse can it possibly get? I mean, this has got to be the lowest of lows. Only the thing is this, that as David was there in that cave, David spent time in that cave. This cave ended up being one of the high points of David's life. It ends up being one of the greatest places that David ever is in his life. Because in that cave, God met him. God blessed him. And for David, that cave became a stronghold. David had come to the cave alone. He had come discouraged. He had come confused. But when he was there in the cave, God had met him. And God had also brought him companions. But we saw last week the companions that God brought to David there in the cave. Well, they weren't exactly the kind of companions that David had been hoping for. David had been hoping that God would bring him some mighty men of God, some people who could encourage him in his discouragement, some godly people who could point him to the Lord and help him to have hope in this time of hopelessness. But do you know what kind of people God brought out to David? Well, they were, they were kind of losers, actually, is basically the, the situation. We read, last week we read this, that all those who were in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter of soul, they came out to David, 400 of them, and he became captain over them. You know, rather than sending David people who could encourage him, God sent people to David who needed David to encourage them. Rather than sending David people who could point David to the Lord and give him hope, God sent David hopeless people who needed David to point them to the Lord. And let me tell you what, that, that's how it often is. You, you may be in a place where you say, you know what, I really need someone to minister to me. I need someone to take care of my needs. But, but God would say to you, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put people in your life who need you to minister to them. And as you're ministering to them, you will be encouraged yourself. You will be built up. You will, you will hear the exact words coming out of your mouth for them that you need to hear yourself. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I certainly have. Here's David. He's feeling depressed. He's discouraged about what's going on in his life. And these people start coming to him. And their lives are just a mess. They're distressed. They're bitter of soul. 
And David starts telling them, he says, you know, I understand that it's hard in your life right now, but what you really need is you need to turn to the Lord. You need to give your life over to the Lord. You need to trust him even in these circumstances. You need to walk with him. And let me tell you what, he loves you and he has a great plan for your life. And as David's telling them these things, he realizes that that's the exact thing that he himself needed to hear at that moment. And David was built up there in the cave of Adullam as he poured out his heart to these people. The men who came to David at the cave of Adullam, they were not mighty men of God. But David took them in and he became their captain and he made them into mighty men of God. And these 400 men later on in 2 Samuel, we will see that they become known as the mighty men of valor. David's mighty men of valor. So here at the outset of chapters 22 and 23 that we're getting into now, we're going to pick it up in verse 6. We see two men, Saul and David. David is surrounded by men, men whom he is fashioning into men of God. And Saul is also surrounded by men. Right now the scene shifts over to Saul. We see him also surrounded by men, but they're... Uh, it's for a completely different reason altogether as we will see verse 6 now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him and Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were surrounding him and Saul said to his servants who stood with him here now people of Benjamin will the son of Jesse give every one of you flocks and vineyards will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with my son uh, with my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as to this day Saul's not in a good mood. Uh, Saul has his spear in his hand again, which is never a good sign with Saul. He has this bad habit of throwing spears at people when he's in a bad mood. And so you can be sure that these men who are around him, his staff, his cabinet, you could say, you can be sure that they were pretty nervous at this point. So Saul gathers his staff together, and what does he say to him? Here's the king of Israel gathering together his, his cabinet, his staff. And what does he say to him? Does he say, men, we have a responsibility to protect this nation. How are we doing at that? Do we have any attacks coming in our nation from the Philistines? Remember, they had been at, under attack from the Philistines for years. And, and guess what? It turns out that as this is happening, there actually is an attack coming against one of the cities of Israel. We're going to see that as we go on. But no, that's not what Saul is focused on right here. He's not focused on his job, which is to protect the people. No, he gets his men together, and what does he say? He says, you guys are all against me, and none of you feel sorry for me. Well, that's leadership, isn't it? This is Saul. This is what he is sinking to. He's been on this path of decline for some time now in our story, going away from the Lord and becoming more and more self-consumed. He doesn't care about other people. Saul cares only about himself. He doesn't care even about the cities of Israel being under attack by the Philistines. Saul cares only about himself. He's consumed with thoughts of himself. Saul accuses David of trying to kill him when in reality he's trying to kill David. He accuses his son Jonathan of provoking David to kill him as if he's a victim. He's painting himself out to be a victim. Everybody's against him. He wants people to feel sorry for him. He's self-focused. His whole world revolves around him. He's paranoid. He's leading through guilt and intimidation. Saul is just really slipping off the deep end. 
And think about how the servants of Saul feel right now. I mean, Saul is not in a good mood, and he's got that spear in his hand again. I mean, that never ends up well. It's just the servants are probably thinking, you know, it's a matter of time before uh, Saul just lets one of us have it and puts a spear through one of our chests. So it, it's just a matter of time before he turns on us. I mean, we saw Saul turn against, his, against David. We saw Saul turn against his own son, Jonathan. How long is it going to be before Saul turns against us, they're thinking. And there was one man there, we'll see, who was clever enough and he was wicked enough to save his own skin. That's what we're going to see in verse 9. Then Doeg the Edomite answered, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now we saw this two weeks ago in our study, how David was running from Saul and he had gone to the tabernacle and he had asked the priest there for food and a weapon because he was hungry. But the thing was that David didn't tell the priest the truth. He made up this lie. Instead of telling Ahimelech that he was really on the run from Saul who was trying to kill him, he tells Ahimelech, oh, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. Saul sent me to do something and I need some food, but I can't, you know, it's a secret that I'm here. Only problem was there was somebody else there at the tabernacle that day, this man, the Edomite, Doeg. And so he saw David there and he saw that Ahimelech gave David food and gave David the sword of Goliath as a weapon because David said, I forgot my weapon at home. And, and so here's this situation. And now Doeg is making it out to seem like Ahimelech was conspiring against Saul. Now why is he doing that? Well, he's doing it to get Saul's anger away from him and on to Ahimelech the priest. It's not true what he's saying. I mean, Ahimelech did help David, but Ahimelech thought that he was helping Saul. It's just a big mess that David created by his lie and by Doeg the Edomite being there. And Doeg is capitalizing on this opportunity to turn Saul's anger away from him and his staff, and, and he's throwing Ahimelech the priest under the bus. Let's see what happens. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he has risen against me to lie in wait as to this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is your king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? You can see here that Ahimelech really has no idea what's going on. He's completely innocent to the situation. Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day. 85 persons who wore the linen ephod and Nob the city of the priests he put to the sword both man and woman child and infant ox donkey and sheep he put to the sword 
This is a terrible, terrible scene. Saul orders Abimelech to be put to death for helping David, but not only that, but he orders Abimelech's whole family to be killed. And not only that, but he orders the whole town of Nob to be, to be murdered, basically. And all of Saul's servants, they hear this and they say, Saul, no, that's too much. We can't do that, just kill a bunch of innocent people. We won't do it, Saul. We won't even take that order from a king. But there was one man, again, who was just wicked enough and just self-serving enough to step up and do it. Doeg the Edomite, he comes out and he kills all these innocent people, all the priests, all the families, their children, all the people in this city. One Bible commentator, Adam Clark, he said this. He said, this is, the, this is one of the worst acts in the life of Saul. His malice was implicable, his wrath was cruel, and there is no motive or justice or policy by which such a barbarous act can be justified. It's just a massacre, senseless killing. You know, unfortunately, these kinds of senseless killings are not uncommon to us in our day either, are they? I mean, here in Colorado, we've seen school shootings. We've seen the terrible shooting that happened in the movie theater in Aurora last year. These things are not uncommon even to our day. We read in verse 21 as we go on that the son of Ahimelech, one of his sons, uh, was able to escape. Abiathar, he was able to escape from this massacre and he was able to get to David and he was able to tell him what happened. And if any of you are interested, check out how David reacted when he heard about this terrible massacre. Because how do we react? Sometimes you don't even know. How should I even react when I hear that kind of terrible news? Well, check it out. Check it out. Psalm 52. It, the title of that psalm is, A Masculine of David, When Doeg the Edomite Came and Told Saul, David Has Come to the House of Ahimelech. That psalm is David pouring out his heart and telling the Lord how he feels in prayer in that psalm. And, and in that psalm, he expresses his outrage at what has happened. And he asks God to, to exact justice in this situation. And David takes comfort in knowing that God is just, that God will deal with these people. He's not going to just let these things happen. It may look like these people can just get away with whatever they want, but he says, no, I take solace in knowing that God is just and God will take care of it. He will deal with it. And that knowledge that God is judge, it gives David a huge release as he's doing that. You see that at the end of the psalm. And, and I wonder if there might be some of you here today who need to take hold of that truth. Maybe you feel that you've been wronged. Maybe you, you've seen terrible things happen. You've seen, it seems like people just get away with things, things that aren't right. I would encourage you to turn to the Lord like David did with those feelings. Lay that situation out before him. Trust him to be judge and to deal with that situation and bring justice in the right way and in the right time. David says there in verse 23 to Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, the high priest who's just been murdered, he says, Stay with me and do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you will be in safekeeping. Now remember this whole chapter, we're looking at this contrast between David and Saul. So here's another one. With Saul, nobody's safe. Anybody could go down at any moment, but with David, people are safe. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Saul is happy? I mean, Saul is so self-consumed, right? Every one of his actions is, is about himself. It's not concerned about other people. He's willing to kill people. He's willing to throw anybody under the bus. He's willing to throw his spear at people on his own staff. Do you think Saul's happy? 
He's consumed with himself. He's trying to do what he thinks will be good for him. But he's not happy at all, not one little bit. And here's David. He's going through one of the most difficult periods of his life. He's living in caves. He's being hunted. And look at David. He's the complete opposite of Saul. His life is consumed with taking care of others and ministering to others. You know, there's something I've observed, and maybe you have too, and that's this. I've seen people who are consumed with trying to make themselves happy. Every action they do, all their time is consumed with thoughts of, how can I fulfill myself? How can I make myself happy? And you know what? They're completely depressed. That's ironic, right? All their thoughts, all their actions are all about how can I meet my needs? What would it take for me to be happy? What do I need to do? But yet they're never happy. And pretty soon they find themselves alone. You know why? Because nobody wants to be around somebody who is consumed with making themselves happy because in that case, you end up becoming a servant to them, right? They see you as service to them. Have you ever noticed also that Jesus was just this kind of person who people were drawn to? People wanted to be around him. People flocked to him. They couldn't get enough of him. They, they just wanted to be around him and spend time with him all they could. And you ever wonder why? Jesus was the very embodiment of loving God and loving others. Saul here, he doesn't do either of those things. In Philippians 2, we're told this, we're, said, we're told, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. You know, we see that heart, we see that mind here in David, and God wants that same heart and that same mind to be in us. And the irony of it is that the more that you have that heart and that mind in yourself, the happier you will be. But the more you are consumed with yourself and your needs and trying to make yourself happy, the more miserable you will end up being. We see that very dynamic here at work in the lives of Saul and David. Well, check out what happens next in verse 1 of chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. David had been hiding out in the caves of the wilderness. Uh, but for David, we, we mentioned that earlier, that the caves became this wonderful place of refuge, a place where God had met David and God had blessed David and David was safe there. But we saw at the end of our section last week in verse 5 of chapter 22 that the prophet Gad had come to David right when he was beginning to enjoy himself in the cave there and, and he had told him, David, God wants you to leave this place. God wants you to leave the stronghold. And he wants you to go to the land of Judah. Now, when David heard that, that must have been very confusing. I mean, why would God send him to the land of Judah of all places? I mean, Judah, that's Saul's backyard. Here in the stronghold, he's safe. The safest thing for David to do would be to stay in the stronghold. To go to Judah, I mean, that's one of the most dangerous places that David could possibly go. So why would God tell him to go there? Why would God do that? Certainly David wondered about that. He must have, you know, wrestled through that. But yet David obeyed. It, it was a decision that didn't seem to make sense from any human perspective. Why would David leave the security 
of the stronghold and put himself in a dangerous, threatening position? Well, it was because David obeyed because he was convinced that this is what God wanted him to do, even though he didn't know why. And so David takes this step of faith and he goes to the land of Judah. And now here, several verses later, as the story switches back to David, we see at the beginning of chapter 23 why it was that God wanted David to leave the stronghold and come to Judah. It's because God wanted David and his men to save the city of Keilah. You see, when David was hiding out in the caves of the wilderness, he was safe. But you know what? He was, he was protected. But also, he couldn't be of much help to anybody else. He couldn't be used by God in the ways that God wanted to use him. In order to be used by God as God wanted to use him in the lives of other people, he had to leave the stronghold. He had to go out of that place. He was comfortable there. Nobody could touch him there. Nobody could hurt him there. But in order to be used by God, he had to step out of that place of comfort and security and, and go to a different place to be used by God. And I wonder how many times in our lives, too, we are so concerned with our own security and our own safety, but God is concerned with using us to help other people, to bless other people. In order to do that, we have to step out of what is secure and what is comfortable for us. You know, it's been said that the number one uh, concern for Americans in general is security. That's the number one concern. That's what Americans tend to desire and seek after more than anything in life. And I think that that carries over into Christianity. I think you can see it very clearly amongst Christians. I mean, think about how many times you pray or you hear other people praying about things related to security. We pray, God, please, you know, traveling mercies, keep that person safe on their journey, bring them back safely, keep me safe. We ask for protection, we ask for covering. I mean, I would say it's one of the main things that I see people praying for. And, and you know, there are a lot of things that we don't pray about, but there's one thing we always pray about, and that is security. We kind of see that as God's area of expertise. There are a lot of things that we can handle on our own, but this is God's area of expertise. But uh, while I'm sure that God is concerned with your security, I would say this. I believe that there are things that God is more concerned about than your personal security or comfort. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there are things that God is even more concerned about than your personal security and comfort? I mean, look at David here. He's a prime example of this. God calls David out of security into a dangerous place because there's something that God is more concerned about than David's comfort and security. God is more concerned about the plight of the people of Keilah. God wants to use David to save this city that's under attack, that's destined for destruction. David was comfortable in the stronghold. He was happy in the stronghold. He was safe in the stronghold. But here's the thing. God had a bigger vision for David's life than that he be comfortable and safe. Do you believe that's true in your life? Do you believe that God has a bigger vision for your life than that you would simply be comfortable and safe? I believe he does. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them out? to go preach the gospel? He said this, he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. A lot of Christians I see, they want to be sent out as sheep among sheep, right? Or sheep among, you know, something cute and fuzzy. And kittens or something, that'd be nice. 
But Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. I'm sending you into danger. Jesus was basically saying this. It's not about danger per se, but here's the thing. To follow me, Jesus would say, to follow me is to be concerned with bigger things than just your own personal comfort and security. A bigger vision. To follow me is about a bigger mission. A mission of redemption, a mission of seeking and saving that which has been lost and corrupted by sin and bringing life into the world, bringing redemption into the world. It's bigger than just you and your personal security and comfort. And Jesus would say, I love you and I came for you. And there are also a lot of other people out there that I want to use you to reach out to. And if you're willing, you can join me on my mission. You can get on board with what I'm doing. And I will use you to accomplish my mission in other people's lives, in other places. But here's the deal. It's not going to always be safe. And it's not always going to be comfortable. And it's going to cost you something. But I'll tell you this. It'll always absolutely be worth it. David, uh, David Platt put it this way. He said this. Jesus promised great reward or Jesus promises great reward but his reward looks much different than what we might expect the the reward of the American dream is safety security and success found in more comfort better stuff and greater prosperity but the reward of Christ trumps all these things and beckons us to live for an eternal security and satisfaction that far outweigh any uh, everything this world has to offer us you know, here at Whitefields, one of our things, right, that makes us who we are is that we want to be a church that is used by God to reach people in this community. We want to be a church on mission with God, both here in Longmont and around the world. Uh, and part of that is that we try to do a lot of outreach. We do mission trips. We encourage that. We, we try to do outreaches here in the park and the other park and throughout the year. Uh, we have several projects that we do, as those of you who have been around know. But, but you know what? Here's the thing I want you to know and I want you to see. If you want to be on mission with God, if this is what we really want to do, and I, and I believe it is what Jesus would have us do, I have to tell you this. It's going to cut into your time. It will. And you know what? It's going to cost you some money. You know that? And you're going to have to give up some things in order to choose to do this, to be on mission. You're going to have to make a conscious choice and give up certain things in order to do it. It's going to be uncomfortable sometimes, but it will definitely be worth it. And, and I want to have that kind of heart that David had, where when God called him to leave that place where he was comfortable, because God had a mission for him, God had a bigger calling for him, David got up and he went. And yes, it was dangerous and it didn't totally make sense at first, but God was calling and David went. And let me tell you this, God wants to do bigger things in and through your life than just provide you with comfort and security. Let me ask you, will you follow him when he calls you to step out or, or, or step out of what you're comfortable with and do something different, do something that might cost you something in order to be used by him in someone else's life? I'll tell you, what, it's definitely worth it, but it definitely costs something. Jesus wanted us to know that. We see that here in David's life as well. He's called out of the stronghold to go and minister to these people of Keilah who are doomed for destruction. 
verse 3. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah amongst the armies of the Philistines? And then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. These are those mighty men of valor, but they're not quite there yet, are they? They're, they've never done this. They're kind of new to this thing of walking with God and stepping out in faith, and they're afraid. And they make it known to David, and David prays, and God just gives them this confidence and this confirmation. Yes, this is from me. I'm going to give you victory. Just go. Obey. And so verse 5 we read, David and his men went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David and his men were victorious. And that's great and good, but... But you also realize at the same time, who should have been there to protect the country against invasion from the Philistines? Whose job was this? Well, this is Saul's job. Saul is the one who has the army of Israel. This is his job. But instead of protecting the people of his country, what is Saul doing? Well, he's on this selfish mission to go and get David. And he's, got, he's using other people to accomplish this thing which really has, it's really just self-serving for Saul. He, he's preoccupied with his own thing, murdering David, and he's neglecting other people. And other people are suffering as a result. It's a sad thing to see where Saul's at. Read in verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to, David, fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Isn't this interesting? On the one hand, you have David, the man who inquires of the Lord, and God answers him. And he does what God tells him to do. On the other hand, you have Saul, who doesn't inquire of the Lord, but he's convinced that he knows what God's will is. And here he's convinced, yes, now I can murder David. This must be from God. Well, he's, he's uh, mistaken, as we'll see later on. Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. Saul gets the intel that David's down in Keilah, so he summons the army. He summons the army. Where was he with this army when the city of Keilah was being attacked? When they were being surrounded by Philistine invaders? Did, did he assemble the army to go and fight for them then? To save a city? No, you know why? Because Saul was busy using the army to destroy a city. You see, this is what we see in Saul's life. He's so self-consumed. He's destroying things rather than giving life. Saul doesn't care about the people of Keilah or anybody else for that matter at this point. David knew, verse 9, that Saul was plotting to harm him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Now this is interesting. The ephod was a linen garment that the priests would wear. And uh, in the ephod that the high priest would wear, which you remember that Abiathar's father was the high priest, Ahimelech, there was this special pouch that would be carried above the chest there. And, uh, and it had 12 stones, one representing each of the tribes of Israel. The high priest, he would bear the, the stones that represent the tribes of Israel. He'd bear the people upon his heart as he ministered to the Lord. But in that, there was this little pouch. We don't know exactly all the details of it, but it was called the umim and the thumim. 
And the high priest would use the umim and thummim to inquire of the Lord and discern the will of God. And so here's Abiathar, the son of the high priest. He's able to get away from this massacre and get this linen ephod with him that has the umim and the thummim. And we're going to see in the next few verses that they use this tool to inquire of the Lord and figure out the Lord's will. Now, the way that the umim and thummim worked was, and here I'm going to give you kind of the culmination of all scholarly, Bible scholarly uh, knowledge on the umim and thummim. We really have no idea. That's, that's basically what it comes down to. Uh, we don't know. To the best of our knowledge, it's, uh, it's a kind of consists of a black rock and a white rock. And what people think is that you would ask a yes or no question, and then the priest would reach in and grab a rock, and based on the rock that he pulled out there, you would have your answer. Now, we don't know all the details of how it worked. It could be wrong, but that's as much as we can discern. Now, probably some of you, when you hear that, there, there are basically two kinds of reactions that that information usually gets. There's the people who say, what? Like, that's how they figured out God's will? Like a white rock and a black rock? I mean, kind of like flipping a coin, or like that magic eight ball that you ask it a question, shake it up, and it tells you the answer? Uh, well, that's one reaction. The other reaction that people get is, where can I get one of those things? Like... I need one of those things. Like, I mean, black rock, white rock. I can do that. That sounds good. I'm going to do some research and figure out how I can make my own, right? Well, the thing is that there's very little that the Bible actually says about this. The Bible, interestingly, gives very specific descriptions and dimensions for almost everything in the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, except for the umim and thummim. And I think there's a reason for that, and it's probably a good thing because if the Bible had given us really some more information about this or how it worked and how it was used etc you know what would happen you go into your local Christian bookstore there'd be like a wall of these things right there'd be like a hundred different manufacturers manufacturing these things overseas and shipping them in so that you could have your own umim and thummim to figure out the will of God but see here in, in in the time that we live in, God has given us something better than the umim and thummim to discern his will. He's given us his word, and he's given us his Holy Spirit within us. And, uh, and I got to tell you, that is better. Because uh, maybe there are some of you here today, and you're thinking, I am dying, actually, to know the will of God for my life, maybe for a particular situation. Well, I just want to give you two important points for those of you who want to discern the will of God for your life and you haven't figured out how to make your own umim and thummim yet. For, uh, number one is this. The first thing you got to do is find out what God has already revealed for you, for your life in his word. There's a lot in here already, so to the best of your knowledge, find it out and then do it, right? Because here's the thing. If you're not doing what's already been revealed to you here in this, in his word, well then how can you expect God to reveal more to you if you're not already doing what he already told you to do? And secondly, if you're wanting God to reveal his will to you, this is important. You've got to be willing to do it. Whatever it is, you've got to be willing to do it. Because here's the thing, you can know the will of God backwards and forwards. You can have discussions about it, theological discussions, you know, about the sovereignty of God versus free choice and the will of God and all that. But if you know the will of God, the real question is, are you willing to do it? If you really want God to reveal his will to you, you've got to be willing to do it. Let's continue from verse 11. We're going to go down to verse 14. 
Verse 11, will the men of Kelos surrender me into his hands? Oh, sorry, verse 10. David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kelah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kelos surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kelos surrender me and my house or and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. This is probably very disappointing for David. I mean, he just saved their city. He just put his neck on the line for these people to save them from this invasion. But yet, they, they're still about to hand him over to Saul. If Saul shows up, they're going to turn David over. On the one hand, you have to sympathize with the people of Keilah. I mean, they, they, they know that Saul just murdered like 85 priests and wiped out a whole village. So then they hear that Saul's coming to their town. They're scared. And what a sad thing that is, that the man who's supposed to be their protector is a tyrant. So let's continue from verse 13. Here's what David does. David and his men, who were about 600 now, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David leaves the city of Keilah. He goes back out into the wilderness, back to living in caves, back to being hunted by Saul. Why? It was to spare the lives of the people of Keilah from King Saul, from the wrath of King Saul. Think about how humbling this must have been for a man like David. What kind of man was David? David was a warrior. This is the kind of man who looks Goliath in the eye and says, let's go, let's do this, right? You want to fight? Let's fight. And I'm sure there was part of David that when he heard that Saul was coming, he's like, look, I got 600 men. If Saul wants to fight, then let's do it. But David realizes here that the best thing he can do for these people, the most loving thing he can do for these people is to humble himself and remove himself from this city. And so David humbles himself and he goes back to living in caves, living in the wilderness, and being chased by Saul. David really saved the city of Keilah twice, didn't he? I mean, the first time he saved it by fighting against the Philistines. The second time he saved the city of Keilah by humbling himself and making himself the target for destruction in order to save the city of Keilah from destruction. David humbled himself. He left the city. He gave up his comfort. Why? Out of love, out of concern for these people. Saul's anger, his, his destruction was diverted away from the people of Keilah and back onto David. And let me tell you this. That is exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. Do you know that? You were destined for destruction, but Jesus moved himself and he took himself, took upon himself the destruction that was meant for you. He sacrificed himself so that you could be saved. And finally, do you see the contrast between these two men, between Saul and David? Saul destroys a city. David saves a city. Saul kills people. David saves people. Saul is a destroyer. David is a savior. Saul is consumed with himself. David is consumed with the will of God and helping other people, even at a time when he himself has a lot of his own problems. David sacrifices his own comfort for the sake of others. Saul cares nothing about others. He cares only about himself. Wherever Saul goes, he brings with him death and destruction. Wherever David goes, he brings life and hope and peace. Let me ask you, who do you want to be? 
That's the point of this section. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a destroyer? Or do you want to be one who brings life? Here in this section, we really have the recipe for both of those. If you want to be like Saul, it's really easy. Just be consumed with yourself. Fill your mind with thoughts about yourself. Let your time, your money, your energy be spent focused on yourself. If you want to be like David, if you want to be like Jesus, the son of David, then be focused, consumed with doing the will of God and putting the needs of others before yourself. That's what Jesus was for you. He put your needs before his comfort. He obeyed the will of God even to the point of death on a cross so that you could have life. He surrendered his life for you. That's the story. It's the story of surrender. Saul refused to surrender to the will of God and the result was destruction and death, not just for other people, but ultimately for himself too. David surrenders his life to God and the result is life for him and for those around him. How about you? Jesus, the son of David, he surrendered his life for you. And the call of the gospel is that you would, in response, surrender your life to him. Will you do that even today? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have surrendered your life for us. Lord, thank you that you put us before your own comfort, Lord. Thank you for that. And I pray for anyone here today who says, you know what, I see in myself Saul-like tendencies. And I don't, want, I don't want to become that man. I see where that leads. I see where being consumed with myself leads. And so, Lord, as a collective group, we repent of that. Lord, we say, forgive us for the times when we've been consumed with ourselves, when we haven't been concerned enough about your will when we've been more concerned about our comfort our security what makes us feel good and not concerned enough about the bigger vision that you have for our lives Lord we repent of that may we be people like David may we be people like Jesus who are consumed with doing the will of God and caring about the needs of others would you do that work in our hearts we pray in Jesus name amen